WPRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As parts of the food chain break down in the face of the coronavirus pandemic, lots of food is thrown away, but much more is usually wasted in U.S. homes. Our problem is with consumers in the United States. The number one place we waste food in the United States is at the household level. We did that before the pandemic, we're doing that during the pandemic, and we will do that after the pandemic. Food is the number one item in U.S. landfills. The pandemic is also sounding a warning about climate inaction. As long as one person has the virus, we're all exposed in one way or the other. And the same thing goes for climate. As long as there are some populations that are most vulnerable, we're all affected. So it's in our self-interest, actually, to act out of solidarity. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Congress and President Trump have enacted a number of measures to help prop up the economy while the coronavirus pandemic keeps millions of Americans isolated at home. Front and center is the CARES Act, totaling trillions of dollars for big and small organizations as well as individuals. Months later, the money has yet to arrive for many businesses and households, but the wait has been even longer for clean energy innovators who have waited for years to tap into a $43 billion low-interest loan fund that Congress and the president approved back in 2016, though it was a different president. Here to explain the holdup is Democratic Representative Frank Pallone, Jr. of New Jersey, chair of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. Congressman Pallone, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. So there's this perhaps $43 billion in low-interest government loans for clean energy projects that apparently has just been sitting around waiting to be dispersed by the Trump administration. How long has this been going on? Where is it supposed to go? Well, they haven't done much, if anything, with this loan program. I mean, during the previous administration under Obama, a lot of loans went out, and the return on investment was great. It was very successful for the most part. I think that it's probably the case that the first energy secretary, Perry, was not, you know, too favorable to the program. So we're hoping that the new energy secretary, Briette, is more favorably disposed and we're talking to him about it. But it's a real opportunity with money that's already available to really stimulate the economy and do innovative energy projects that, you know, would create jobs and also be helpful for the environment. Well, I was going to say that clean energy tech jobs have been some of the fastest growing jobs in the U.S. for a number of years now. In your view, just how could clean energy loans help the country's economy in the face of this pandemic with so many folks who are unemployed? Well, I mean, you mentioned that the U.S. clean energy sector provides more than 3 million jobs, you know, that are both energy clean, but also energy efficient. And the whole purpose of this program, Steve, is to look into innovation. In other words, you know, what kinds of projects are innovative and would utilize either existing technologies in innovative ways or be the first of the kind in a geographic region. We know that these types of things create a lot of jobs. I mean, I think I have some statistic here that says that for the loans that went out, mostly prior to the Trump administration, less than 3% of the projects defaulted on their loans. So it has a a real good record of success in supporting both businesses and jobs. And of course, right now, because we've got, what, 30 million people that filed for unemployment, 
in the last few weeks or months because of COVID-19. I mean, something like this would be really important now in terms of creating jobs with such a high unemployment rate out there from the virus. Now, as the chair of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce, what are the moves that you have now to address this issue? Well, I mean, there's two things. One is to try to convince the secretary, as I said, the new secretary, to actually, you know, push this out. And then the second thing is to make some structural changes in the program. And the Energy Commerce Committee that I chair has most of the jurisdiction that relates to climate change or climate action. And so we put forward a proposal called the Clean Futures Act that has a number of initiatives to try to address climate change and you know, make us carbon neutral by 2050. And so in that, we have some structural changes to this uh, energy program, this loan program that we're talking about today, that would, I think, improve the situation. Three things. Right now, this Department of Energy has high fees that are a barrier for entry into this program. So what we do in our Clean Futures Act is reduce expenses so that the program is accessible to more applicants. And then the second thing we have is trying to expand eligibility. This loan program has this innovation threshold that the project has to utilize existing technology in innovative ways and be the first of its kind. So we're trying to provide more flexibility so this idea of first of the kind isn't just like the only one nationally, but maybe first of the kind in the Southeast or first of the kind in New England, you know, that type of thing. And then the last thing is to have some kind of reforms for advanced technology vehicles to expand eligibility. Because, you know, a lot of these loans were for cars or heavy duty vehicles. You know, that would refocus the program on vehicles with lower or zero carbon emissions, because that seems to be where a lot of these technological innovations are that would be eligible for the program. If the secretary was just willing to push out a lot of these loans, I think we could still do it without these structural changes that I'd like to see. But when we do a stimulus package, and hopefully we do a stimulus package in the next few months, we would like to see these changes that I mentioned to the program be incorporated. Now, some might say that these loans are going unused as a result of a partisan decision to promote the fossil fuel industry over the clean energy sector. How do you respond to that? I mean, I think that's true, but I can't, you know, verify it. But I mean, as you know, the Trump administration has been much more fossil fuel oriented. They haven't really been advocates for clean energy proposals or, you know, uh, some of these innovative manufacturing projects for cars or trucks as well. If, if anything, they've been moving in the opposite direction and, you know, loosening fuel efficiency requirements and encouraging more fossil fuels and doing even more of that now during the COVID emergency. I would probably say you're, you're right. But my argument to the secretary is, look, let's do everything, right? I'm not saying they should only do clean energy technology as opposed to fossil fuel. But this is a program that's out there and that we think can stimulate jobs. So put aside your opposition in this environment because we need to create jobs and don't look at it ideologically. I mean, that may be difficult, but, you know, that's what I kind of do with everything right now. So here we are in May, six months away from a national election. If the wind blows in the direction of the Democrats, what are your hopes for next year as chair of the Committee on Energy and Commerce in the House? Well, we have two things. One is to enact a Clean Futures Act into law so that we move towards this carbon neutral 
goal of 2050 and reach that goal over the next few decades. And then, of course, a major infrastructure program that's oriented towards energy efficiency and clean energy. And that would include upgrading the energy grid, creating a national program for electric vehicles, and trying to do more to encourage clean energy, both through incentive grants as well as tax policy. You know, there's a lot that can be done, and hopefully we have a a Democratic president. They're going to be much more oriented towards meeting these climate goals and putting in place uh, programs, both with, you know, major infrastructure initiatives and other grants and financial incentives to achieve that. That would be the goal. Congressman Pallone is a Democrat who represents the 6th District of New Jersey and chairs the Committee on Energy and Commerce. Thanks so much for taking time with us today. All right. Thank you, Steve. Take care. It's time now to take a look beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. Peter is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. What stories do you have for us today, Peter? Hi, Steve. Last week, President Trump signed an executive order that has both environmentalists and commercial fishermen concerned. The order would pave the way for the culture operations that could threaten traditional fishers, particularly on the East Coast, where saltwater fish grown in pens isn't really a thing yet. Yeah, the commercial fisher people don't like this at all. They say it's going to make a mess, right? Yeah, there are several issues, among them contamination, actually pollution of ocean waters from fish feed, contamination of the ocean ecosystem uh, when those fish inevitably escape, fish like tilapia that are popular in grocery stores but that aren't a part of the East Coast ecosystem. There are big concerns already with overfishing on the East Coast. Warming ocean waters are moving traditional ranges of food fish like summer flounder, moving it from off the Carolina coast far, far north. Well, it sounds like the notion of having fish in pens would be a major headache for the seafood industry. Steve, that's a bad pun. This is a serious topic. You know, I'm not just bringing it up for the halibut. Oh my goodness. Hey, so what else do you have for us today? There's an intriguing story from the UK. A place called Braid's Farm, it's a dairy operation in Lancashire, is marketing what it calls climate smart milk. Oh, that would be nice. I mean, cattle, I mean, whether raised for meat, cheese, or milk are considered to be climate unsmart. Yeah, cows' digestive systems produce a large amount of methane, which enters the atmosphere via both ends of the cow, but mostly through burps. Braid's Farm feeds its herd a garlic supplement made in Switzerland and called, wait for the new pun, Mootrol. Okay. How proven is this technology, Peter? It's not proven yet. It hasn't caught on. If it does, it would be a big deal. As you know, methane is at least 80 times as potent a greenhouse gas as CO2. Cattle are a big contributor to the methane problem, and this would potentially solve at least a little bit of the contribution of agriculture to climate change. Although I'm a little skeptical of this, Peter, because in my youth, I worked on dairy farms, and if the cows got into what we called onion grass, you'd taste it in the milk. Yeah, but if this does work, it's a rare case where garlic will actually improve the breath of cattle. Okay, let's take a look back in history, Peter, and what are we going to talk about? 135 years, 135th anniversary, May 15th, 1885, the New York State Legislature created the Adirondack Park Forest Preserve in far upstate New York. It's a massive area 
about two-thirds the size of the state of Rhode Island. They wanted not only to protect a beautiful area from development, but also protect the source of the Hudson River, much of New York's water supply. And New York has fairly good water for a major metropolitan area, doesn't it? They do. And that same year, 1885, they made much of the Catskills, that's a small mountain range much closer to New York City, into Catskill State Park. It's now the home of several reservoirs created to serve Metro New York. And like the Adirondacks, it's home not only to beautiful scenery, some of the best biodiversity in the eastern U.S., but also this time of year, some of the most bodacious black flies I've ever been swarmed by. All right. Well, thanks, Peter. Peter Dykstra is an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. To get the stories behind the stories on Living on Earth, as well as special updates, please sign up for the Living on Earth newsletter. Every week you'll find out about upcoming events and get a look at show highlights and exclusive content. Just navigate to the Living on Earth website, that's LOE.org, and click on the newsletter link at the top of the page. That's LOE.org. Just ahead, we'll take a look at the problem of food waste in the United States, but first this note on emerging science from Don Lyman. Paleontologists in New Zealand have found fossils of the largest known parrot to ever exist. Researchers say the newly described species of extinct parrot, Heracles inexpectatus, would have been about 3 feet tall and 15 pounds. Scientists suspect the extinct bird probably had a massive beak that it may have used to rip open anything it liked, including other parrots. The fossilized leg bones of the giant parrot were unearthed at St. Bethan's, New Zealand, in 2008. Researchers thought the bones were from an extinct species of eagle. In fact, the bones sat with a collection of eagle bones for about 10 years, until a graduate student realized that the fossil drumsticks were actually from a species of parrot that lived around 19 million years ago. Prior to this discovery, the largest known parrot in the world was about 2 feet tall and around 9 pounds. That's the kakapo a flightless, critically endangered parrot in New Zealand. In fact, New Zealand is a hotspot for giant birds. The island's now extinct moa were up to 12 feet tall and more than 500 pounds. Moas resembled their Australian cousins, emus. But until now, no one had ever found an extinct giant parrot. That's this week's Note on Emerging Science. I'm Don Lyman. Around the world, more than a third of all food is wasted. In less affluent countries, a lot of food becomes spoiled on the way to market, but in the U.S. and other rich economies, most food is thrown out at home because it's rotted in the fridge or on the counter. And the numbers are huge. On a yearly basis, food waste accounts for more than 3 gigatons of carbon dioxide, about a third of the human CO2 contribution to climate disruption. And with the closure of many restaurants and schools amid the pandemic, interruptions in food supply chains have led to even more food waste. 
John Mandyke is CEO of the Urban Green Council and co-author of the book Food Foolish, The Hidden Connection Between Food Waste, Hunger, and Climate Change. He joins me now. John Mandyke, welcome back to Living on Earth. Hey, Steve. It's great to be back on the program. Wonderful to have you. We're seeing reports that say gallons of milk are being dumped and fields and fields of vegetables are being plowed under. What's going on? You know, Steve, when I see farmers having to dump milk or plow under vegetables, I think about three big things. First thing I think about is that this shows the short-term balance in our food supply. Disruption travels very fast. Think about the egg that was served in the restaurant. That egg got to that restaurant just one or two days ago. If the restaurant closes, the chicken doesn't know that. The eggs keep rolling. And so the farmer is left with a problem that he has to deal with. And so that's what we're seeing with the short-term balance in our food supply. The second thing I think about is the lack of refrigerated storage for food banks. This has always been the case. It's always been a problem. If food banks had proper refrigerated storage, all this milk that's being dumped under could have gone somewhere. And that's the plight that the farmer has. Farmers say, I wish I had someplace I could deliver this milk. And the third thing this points out is that we're actually pointing the finger in the wrong place. Oh? Um, You know, our food production and distribution in the United States is very well calibrated. Our problem is with consumers in the United States. The number one place we waste food in the United States is at the household level. We did that before the pandemic. We're doing that during the pandemic. And we will do that after the pandemic. Food is the number one item in U.S. landfills. That didn't come from the farmer. That came from our waste bins. One of the interesting aspects of the COVID crisis and the isolation associated with it is that I think more of us are cooking. To what extent do you think cooking at home will raise awareness for people about how much food has been historically wasted at home? I think it will. I mean, the the closer we can become connected to our food, the better we'll understand it. You know, for a long time, we've thought that grocery stores were these magical places where You know, we buy yogurt, we don't use it, we throw it away, we go back to the grocery store, and guess what? The yogurt is back on the shelf. Like, it magically appeared. (laughs) Um, And so we bought it again. You know, the pandemic is showing us with shortness of supply chains that, well, maybe grocery stores aren't the magic places that we thought they were. Because, by the way, the yogurt wasn't there when you went back. And so hopefully it is bringing people closer to their food, starting to question, well, why wasn't the yogurt there? Well, there's a long distribution chain to get the yogurt there. And so the closer we come to our food, I think the more respect we'll have for where it came from, how it got to our table, and how we actually should cherish it more. So what about the whole notion of then put by more people? I don't know how many more are gardening out there. And it's harder to throw away that uh, lettuce that you've grown with weeding and all the stuff you have to do, as opposed to just simply having picked it up at the store. To what extent do you think the making of food closer to home might help with this food waste problem? I think it does. If you invest the time to grow your own food in the backyard, you literally have sweat and tears um, invested in your food supply. So I think that helps. But it points out another issue. I don't know if you've ever tried to grow zucchini in your backyard. The zucchini comes in an on and off switch. And so you wait all season and then you get two bushels of them. Yeah, some of them are the size of baseball bats as well, if you're not careful. That's right. And so um, I know in my house, we can't eat all of those. So it really, 
underscores the issue in our food system is that there's literally a bounty of riches when the harvest comes. And so you have to find a way to get rid of that zucchini. Otherwise, you're going to throw it away too, right? So you're making zucchini cakes, you're shredding it, you're, you're, you're freezing it. There's only so much of that you can do. And then you start your own food distribution system by giving it to your sister, your mother, your neighbor. <laughs> um, but it, it, that, that too helps underscore the bigger picture that we have with our global food supply. So what do you recommend that we do as a nation and as individuals to reduce food waste then? Well, you know, as a, as a nation, our number one issue is at the consumer level. That's where we're throwing away most food. It's the same in Europe. It's the same in the United States. It's really a rich country dilemma because we can afford to do it. Food is relatively inexpensive in the United States. And if we throw away the 99-cent yogurt because we were confused about the date label, we simply go back and get another 99-cent yogurt. So we have to have consumer education and awareness to understand the, the scale and consequence of what happens when we throw away that food. We have to have public policies that encourage us not to do that, and that means encouraging date labels that are rational and make sense. This has happened in Europe. There's been strong campaigns over the last decade to encourage consumers to waste less food, and we've seen that those have worked. We need those campaigns in the United States. If you look globally, though, two-thirds of all the global food supply is lost at that production and distribution level. This is an emerging economy problem where food rots in poor transportation networks, it rots in open-air markets, it rots in wet markets in China, which is relevant to the pandemic that we're having today. And so we have to find ways to modernize that production and distribution system in emerging economies if we really want to tackle the issue on a global level. So what can we learn from other countries that have uh, tried to tackle food waste? Well, I'll point to two. In the United Kingdom, they started a consumer campaign called Love Food, Hate Waste, where environmental organizations and hunger organizations partnered with the grocery stores. And the campaign has gone well. Over the last decade, they tell us that they've reduced household waste by 20%, which is a huge improvement. So that works well. France is a good case study in a different direction. A few years ago, France passed a law that bans supermarkets from throwing away food that is otherwise good to eat. Now, that sounds like a great policy that, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense, but we can actually learn a lot from the French law. What happened is the supermarket said, okay, we can't throw away the food. We'll deliver them to the food banks. So if you run a small food bank in a small French village, uh, one morning you come to work and you could have three boxes of apples. That's great. You're going to distribute three boxes of apples to those in, in your village that you know they need them. The next morning you come to work, you find you have a truckload of eggs. What are you going to do with a truckload of eggs? You don't have the refrigerated capacity that we talked about. You don't have the distribution system. You can't get them out fast enough. So what happened in a inverse way is that the food banks were starting to throw away the food and, you know, kind of standing up and saying, what just happened here? And so it's really questioned the role of policy. Policy is needed but we have to understand the uh, unintended consequences of those policies. And the French law was, is, has been a great lesson to the world. What's the impact of all this food waste on our climate, do you think? Well, food waste is, to me, one of the sleeping giants of climate change. If you measure the carbon footprint of all the food that we lose or throw away each year, and we measure it as a country, it would be the world's third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. 
And so we need consumers to understand that, particularly in the United States, to help change consumer behavior, that when we throw an item in the landfill, we just threw a ton of carbon in the landfill. An example is a strawberry. Steve, you and I are on the East Coast right now. If we eat a strawberry today, it came to us from California. It took a lot of carbon to prepare to grow that strawberry. The farmer had to go out in the field with a tractor. He had to plow the field under. He had to plant the strawberry. He had to water the strawberry, use a lot of water. Then he had to harvest the strawberry using carbon. He had to bring the strawberry from the field into a packaging place, which burned electricity. We took plastic, which is carbon-based, and and wrapped it in plastic. Then we put it on a truck, and we brought it across the United States burning carbon. It got to your grocery store. It sat on the shelf. The store is burning carbon, waiting for you to come. Maybe you got in your car and burned carbon to go get the strawberry, brought it back. You put it in your refrigerator, which is plugged in, burning carbon. And then you forgot to eat it, and it went bad, and it got moldy, and you threw it away. It would have been better to throw the strawberry away in the field from the carbon standpoint because it was fully carbon loaded when it got to you, the consumer. And so we need to understand that it's not just throwing away the strawberry, it's throwing away all the carbon that went into getting the strawberry to you and to me. John Mandyke is CEO of the Urban Green Council. He's also co-author of the book Food Foolish, The Hidden Connection Between Food Waste, Hunger, and climate change. Thanks so much, John, for taking the time with us today. Steve, it's been great to be on the show. When Julia Watkins started thinking about food waste in her own home, she took action to reduce her household waste and live more simply. She shares pictures of her low-waste journey on Instagram and has amassed nearly a quarter of a million followers. And as a social media influencer, she's now sharing some of her strategies and recipes in a new book, Simply Living Well, A Guide to Creating a Natural, Low-Waste Home. She joins us now from near Chicago. Julia Watkins, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you so much. A lot of people, I imagine, are are starting out or looking again at the simplicity side of, of having really low waste because we can't go anywhere. So in this moment... What are a couple of things that you would point out to people who really maybe haven't thought about trying to live at the low waste or zero waste level, Mm -hmm. things that they could simply do right now in their homes and apartments, given the challenges that we have? Well, so my book was actually inspired by my great-grandparents' generation. A lot of my style of of low waste or zero waste is very old-fashioned. And, you know, they all survived the Great Depression by virtue of being resource-conscious. So the recipes in my book are very, they're very within anyone's reach. For example, to make a veggie stock, you use scraps from the vegetables you've used for cooking throughout the week. So you don't have to go out and buy a carton of veggie stock, and you also don't have to buy new vegetables for it. When you make nut milk, you can use any kind of nut you have. You don't throw the pulp away at the end. You use it to make crackers. You use it to make truffles. When you eat an orange, don't throw the peel away. You can put it in a jar of vinegar and let it infuse for a couple of weeks and then turn it into an all-purpose cleaner. Or you could do what my grandmother did, make candy out of the stuff. Really? Yeah, those orange rinds, those grapefruit rinds, they would candy them at the holidays. I haven't tried that yet, but I've wanted to. Yeah, you can use orange peels for all kinds of things. So 
you're really big on vegetable scraps. And in fact, you have a recipe for a soup made from vegetable scraps. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah. When I first started going zero waste, I noticed a lot of people making this veggie scrap stock. So I tried to figure out a way to make it really delicious. And basically what I do is save veggie scraps and past peak produce. I prepare veggies throughout the week. I wash and save stalks and peels and leaves. And then I store them in a paper bag or a mason jar in the refrigerator. And when I have about four cups worth, I make the stock. So it's not as easy as just throwing the stock in a pot with some water. You want to give it a really strong, flavorful base. So just chop up a couple of onions, a couple of carrots, some celery, and some garlic, and put a little oil in the bottom of your pot and saute them until they're tender. And then just all you have to do is add your four cups of scraps, eight cups of water, let it boil, then simmer for an hour. And that's it. That's your veggie scrap stock. You can um, let it cool and bottle it up in mason jars and put it in the fridge if you're going to use it that week, or you can freeze it too. It freezes for up to six months to a year. Then take me to the next step. So what do you get to use this for? I use it in a lot of the recipes in the book. A lot of the recipes come from harvesting vegetables from my garden. So I use it for a carrot tomato soup. And I use it for an onion garlic soup that uses 40 cloves of garlic. <laughs> 40 cloves of garlic. Mm. Yeah. A little hot for the mouth, don't you think? No? Well, you roast it and it takes a lot of the sting out. It's delicious. So I use it for, for that and we stir fry a lot at our house. So I'll use it for stir fries. I go through through the stock pretty quickly. I usually make this every Sunday. It's part of my, my weekly rhythm. Julie, in your opinion, why should we be doing this? Why should we be trying to minimize the waste that we create in the planet? Well, I think there's different ways to look at it. There's sort of the environmental reason. We know that we're extracting resources faster than is sustainable. We know that populations are growing and that eventually things could get really difficult for people. For me, I know that I care about the natural world. I've had these wonderful experiences. For me, it's it doesn't come so much from my head. It's not so intellectual. It's a little more from like my heart, I guess, as cheesy as that sounds. But I've had these experiences. I do think I have a connection to the natural world. And it makes me feel good to to be authentic, to be who I say I am. And I think I've always said I would do this even if we weren't in the midst of a climate crisis or a coronavirus. But it really, we have all the reason to do it if, if it's coming from an intellectual place. How do you reach people who are so driven by the, the brand, the label, the chicness, the being able to, well, we're moving ahead, aren't we? We must do something that's new and modern. How do you address those folks yeah. when they can look and see that so many of the things you recommend come from, well, a century ago? I think you have to make it beautiful for those people. And it is beautiful. If you look at old-fashioned cleaning tools, they're not made out of bright pink plastic poles or handles, right? They're made out of beautiful wood. And the bristles are made out of horse hair and real natural fibers. They're beautifully, they're aesthetically pleasing. I think a lot of people get into zero waste and natural living because of the aesthetics. And I think that's fine. Once they're there, just try to keep them there, <laughs> you know. But I think 
I think sustainability has grown because it is beautiful and it, it does appeal to people's sense of style and personal aesthetic. And what would you say to folks who are now stepping into a very difficult time economically? How does your approach to natural low waste save money? Well, a lot of the, the recipes use what you already have. They use things that your grandmother used when she was strapped for cash too. They're inspired by the idea that you can grow herbs, you can dry them, you can preserve them, and then you can use them for every area of your home. What inspired you to get involved in all of this? I think mine happened in a lot of different stages. So my professional background is all in environmental work. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in a tiny little village in Guinea, and I saw people literally living in direct connection with the environment. And I saw them living simply and slowly. And uh, I was so inspired by people just making do with what they had. So I think once my first child was born and I was home for a while, I wanted to integrate everything I'd learned through my education and my experiences with my actual life. That's when I started cooking with real ingredients and real food. And one thing led to another. It was like a rabbit hole. And then I was making my own cleaning supplies. And then I was growing a garden and learning how to sew and learning how to knit. And for me, it was very empowering. I think sometimes people think of the 1950s when they think of some of these skills. But when it's a choice, when you want to learn them, it's extremely empowering. And in a time like this, I feel resourceful. I don't feel worried about things not being on the shelves at the grocery store because I can probably make it or get by with what I have. Julia Watkins' book is called Simply Living Well, A Guide to Creating a Natural Low-Waste Home. Julia, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. A quick correction to last week's program. In our segment with Harvard Law Professor Richard Lazarus on the Supreme Court case Massachusetts v. EPA, we mistakenly edited out a comment that noted Marbury v. Madison is a foundational Supreme Court ruling. Coming up, the hard lessons of the coronavirus pandemic and how they relate to climate change. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The coronavirus pandemic has made it clear that the world is increasingly interconnected. But amid the tragedy of the virus, a top climate diplomat says there's an opportunity to rebuild our economies in ways that are both more equitable and sustainable. Christiana Figueres was the executive secretary of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change when the world came together to hash out the historic Paris Climate Agreement. And the Costa Rican diplomat recently wrote a book titled The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis. She joined us for a virtual Goodreads on Earth event to talk about her book, and I started by asking her about the relationship she sees between climate disruption and the coronavirus pandemic. Oh, wow. Well, actually, quite a few, quite a few lessons that we can learn from the pandemic, Steve. 
So I think we've learned very quickly and very deeply that global challenges are global, that they don't ask for a passport, they don't stop at any border, do immigration, nothing like that, right? But definitely something that should teach us the lesson that building walls is completely ridiculous in front of uh, global challenges. The other piece that I have learned is that exceptionalism is such a myth. We are only as vulnerable as the most vulnerable person among us, among us being on the planet. As long as there's one person that has the virus, we're all exposed in one way or the other. To think that you're an exception to a global rule is ridiculous. And the same thing goes for climate. As long as there are some populations, and we all know which are the populations that are most vulnerable, always the bottom of the pyramid, but as long as they are affected, we're all affected. So it's in our self-interest, actually, to act out of solidarity. This is a big deal, That what's happened. This is, in fact, I think will realign how we conduct our civilization going forward. I hope so. And reminds us of what was said back at times in the ecological and environmental movement to think globally and act locally. Exactly. Yeah. Because as you point out, you know, the poorest paid among us in the United States now where I'm speaking to you from don't have access to good health care, can't get tested for the virus. And yet these are the folks who are cooking the food that people might take out or packaging the groceries that might get delivered or... Or delivering the packages, yep. Delivering the packages or, you know, working in healthcare settings where wages are, again, very low and in care facilities where we have such a ridiculously high death rate. And hence exposing to each other, right? So exposing themselves. So, you know, the appreciation for all of those professions that we never really thought about before has also just skyrocketed, which is a good thing. But the final thing that I just wanted to add about lessons learned is there are many different kinds of risk, but there are some that are less or, or more probable and there are others that have higher or lower impact. But the real ones that we have to take a look at are the ones that have both high probability and high impact. That is true of this virus. The same thing is true with climate, Steve, right? Right. That is a high probability, high impact threat. And the quicker that we understand that and begin to respond, the less we're going to suffer. So, you know, although coming from two very different sources, huge common lessons between climate and the virus. And by the way, in your book, you point out that as the permafrost melts, viruses might be released because, of course, viruses, when they're frozen, they can sit around forever. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the other thing, that the relationship between climate and health is a direct relationship because, first, many of the vector-borne diseases that are borne by mosquitoes, for example, such as malaria and dengue and chikungunya, All of those diseases currently are restricted to the equatorial belt because that is the temperature and water conditions, humidity conditions, that those mosquitoes that bear the disease need. But as temperatures increase, those temperature and precipitation conditions will actually expand beyond the equatorial belt into much higher up in the north and in the south. Hence, we will have malaria, dengue, and chikungunya in areas that have never known that disease. So that's one direct impact. And the other one, as you point out, is that the permafrost, such as in Siberia, that has been frozen for thousands of years, 
could very well hold viruses that haven't been affecting us, but as it melts, we could be exposed to very unusual viruses and hence, you know, diseases that we have never even heard about. So yeah, I, I mean, the relationship between health and climate is a pretty close one. Indeed. I mean, just here in the United States, we see very high mortality associated with people living where there are a lot of particulates from pollution. Now, let's talk about your book some more. You have three mindsets that you describe in it. So I'm going to ask you if you could walk us through them and uh, why you consider they're so essential when when tackling this climate crisis. Let's start with stubborn optimism. Is that Mm. you? Are you the stubborn optimist? Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We do learn things um, in life. And I've actually learned that it's important to be stubborn, especially if it's for the common good. Right. And and so that's where that stubbornness comes. And the optimism, the combination of being stubborn and being optimistic for me means that it's not a naive optimism. It's not, you know, a blind optimism. It's actually a very educated and informed optimism that knows exactly what the conditions are, either on climate or on this virus in this case. So it's an informed optimism, but it is a choice that we make to have a constructive, determined attitude that in the face of any challenge, including the one that we have, that we collectively can get out of this. Because if we start with an attitude of defeatism, well, then we probably stand very little chance of succeeding, right? You know, as as the saying goes, whether you think you're going to succeed or you think you're not going to succeed, you're probably right either way. Because your thought very much determines the probability of success. And so, you know, arming ourselves with the gritty determination to get through any challenge is important. And we have to be stubborn about it because we know that any challenge comes with barriers and with problems that we have to get through. We have to be gritty about it. So stubborn optimism. And then you talk about endless abundance as another mindset that's critical here. I thought we got in trouble because we think that we have endless abundance and we can just use all the resources that's on the planet. What do you mean? Yeah, well, that one is a really cool mindset because it's a provocative one, right? And it really calls into question, what do we mean by abundance and what do we mean by scarcity? The reason why we've gotten to scarcity is because we have been extracting, using and wasting or just throwing aside whatever we have extracted and used once. And so that has led to a scarcity of everything, a scarcity of clean water, certainly a scarcity of of atmosphere space. But you know, it is quite impressive that given the technologies that we have now, that we can actually create abundance. And here's what I mean by that. There is a way of thinking that would have us, I'm going to take my piece and use it and then discard it, or even worse, Steve, the paradigm that we have grown up with, which is the zero-sum paradigm, right? I'm going to win, and in order for me to win, I'm going to make you lose. That zero-sum game is totally, and competition, this unhelpful competition, is totally against a mindset of abundance. And when we let go of that, then we understand that actually we can create an abundance that is good for all of us, and that we can all win. So, for example, what we can do by cleaning the atmosphere, by drawing from 
renewable energy sources that are completely abundant, right? There is no end to how much sunrise we will be able to collect. There's no end to how much wind we will be able to collect. That is abundance. And we can bring all of this energy and all of this electricity to any part of the world. So we have to be able to think in a different form. It's not me against you. It's me and you creating together. So how do you get an abundance in thinking? Because right now, it seems to me we have a a paucity of clear thinking about how, you know, the planet works and things that's getting us into this whole climate crisis. We seem to be very short on a critical mass of folks to respond to this crisis where we are right now. In your book, you point out, you know, hey, this is like, you know, a few minutes before midnight. We're right there. We don't make the moves In this time, in this window, we have cast the die at least for hundreds of years for the people and maybe the civilization that follows us. Yeah. And, you know, when we wrote the book just a few months ago, we were thinking that we actually had these 10 years, this decade, in order to make the difference with greenhouse gases. And what is really scary, Steve, is that this coronavirus is sort of like climate change in a time warp, right? All of a sudden, everything has speeded up. And just to bring these two things together, the recovery packages, obviously governments have to deal first with health issues and security and jobs. But once they get to the recovery period beyond the immediate health crisis, they are already designing recovery packages. And those recovery packages will be trillions of dollars. Some of my friends say even up to $10 trillion. Well, here's the thing. If those $10 trillion around the world go into the fossil fuel industries and all of its derivatives, we then have cemented ourselves into a high carbon, high emitting economy for decades to come. And we will totally close the door to the possibility that we have right now of reducing our emissions according to science, which is reducing the emissions to one half of what we have right now by 2030. Conversely, If those recovery packages are designed with all of the crises in mind, with the health crisis, with the climate crisis, with the oil crisis, and with the inequality crisis in mind, right? If we put our arms around all of these crises that are affecting each other and increasing each other, if we put our arms around all of them as opposed to treating them separately in silos, And we say, right, these have all collided. Now let's converge the solutions and let's be smart about how we are going to design and dedicate this fresh capital that is going to go into the economy. Then we have the most extraordinary opportunity to really make a difference on all of those issues. But if we don't, if we actually take one by one sequentially, we are in very, very bad shape. You have a list of things to do, some action items, and we would take a fair amount of time, I think, if we went through all the action items that you have in the future to choose. But the first action item, kind of a big one, you say, we got to let go of fossil fuels. Stop blaming and pointing fingers, but get off of carbon the way an alcoholic has to kick ethanol. How do we do this? 
That's such a good analogy. I never thought about that. But yeah, it's a very good analogy because we are addicted, right? Our economy, not we personally, but our economy is so addicted to that. And, you know, it's interesting because when you look at the way many investments are made, the logic of investment follows very much the logic of the fossil fuel industry. And it's been a really, really tough ride for renewable energy investments to have the access to the capital that they need because they have a very different economic structure. But we have to get beyond this. I don't believe in blaming the fossil fuels because honestly, look at the United States, look at any industrialized country, all of the economic growth that is being enjoyed today is thanks to the fossil fuels. So we shouldn't, you know, now kick them in the teeth. The fact is that they were incredibly helpful to give us what we needed in the last century. But now we don't need them anymore. Now we should be grateful to them and put them in the retirement home because that's where they belong. And any attempt to keep those technologies alive are, frankly, they're futile because we will move beyond them and, and they are highly irresponsible because they are being responsible for deaths either through health crisis or because climate change is actually causing deaths. So we have to be able to move beyond them. Well, I want to thank you for taking all this time with us today to talk about the climate, the virus, and your book, which is titled The Future We Choose, Surviving the Climate Crisis. Christiana Figueres, what's next for you? What's your next chapter now that you got this book out? <laughs> Well, I don't know, Steve, because, you know, honestly, now that I'm here on the Osa Peninsula with the Corcovado Park, it's pretty uh, pretty tempting to stay here with the howler monkeys and the scarlet macaws. And, you know, it's a pretty wonderful country. What can I say? But right now, right now, I am very focused uh -huh. on really trying to get the best out of the virus crisis because it is too deep a crisis to not be able to derive a silver lining out of it. And it has fast forwarded the very difficult financial choices that we would have had to make over the next 10 years anyway, but that now have to be made in the short term. So right now, that's what I'm focused on. So thank you very much for giving me an opportunity to share those thoughts. Thank you. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for talking about our book. And thank you just in general for being a wonderful human being. On Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Thurston Briscoe, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Merlin Hadjumeri, Candace Wing G, Don Lyman, Isaac Merson, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy.